and uh, welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Sherry Goodman. I'm a, I am the president and CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership and a board member and executive committee member here at the council. I'm delighted uh, to be here with all of you for this commander series titled Protecting the Homeland and with Admiral Bill Gortney, the commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, and NORTHCOM. And as always, I'd like to thank Saab North America for their steadfast support for this commander series, which we have done together at the council since 2007. It's one of the flagship series that the council hosts, and we're happy that we're able to carry on this great tradition with Admiral Gortney today. And it's also great that Michael Anderson is with us from Saab, North America's president and CEO, as well as an Atlantic Council board director, who will come up shortly to introduce the Admiral. Mike, thank you for all you do and for the great relationship um, between Saab and the Council. So we always gather here at the Council in the context of the Atlantic, transatlantic relationship. And uh, I just happened to come right now from the State Department where uh, we're celebrating 25 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Atlantic Council was privileged to co-host an event with Secretary Kerry and the German president to celebrate um, that marvelous event which reminds us all of the uh, hopefulness of the reunification of Germany and the end of the Cold War. So we should keep that in mind as we think about the challenges that we face today in this very turbulent world, the crisis in Europe's east, the brutal war in Syria, the Islamic, Islamic State's oppressive rule in parts of Iraq and Syria, the growing power of China, the continued belligerent stance of North Korea and the looming threat of climate change and the new challenges in the Arctic all come together to face a, create a massive challenge uh, that we must all face. And in this emerging era of major power competition, the threat of terrorism still looms large and Islamic State-inspired attacks have happened on our soil in recent months, and, uh, have, and we've had always another attack similar to the size of 9-11 of we must protect against. In a connected world, terrorist organizations can inspire attacks by posting tweets, Facebook posts, or simply images that lead a terrorist to commit heinous acts anywhere in the world. And while terrorism has been with us a long time, this is certainly a new age of hyper-connectivity, and that's why we're so lucky today to have Admiral Gortney with us to discuss what he and his commands are doing to protect the homeland. Many of the threats I've described can affect us within our borders, and the Admiral is at the forefront of ensuring that no harm comes to Americans here at home. We're also extremely fortunate to have a journalist of Eric Schmidt's caliber to lead the Admiral and us through a discussion on these topics after the Admiral's opening remarks. Thank you, Eric, for your uh, great and long distinguished career and for your engagement here with the Council as well. Well, with that, uh, we have a lot to, to talk about, so let's uh, get right into it. I'd like to bring up uh, Mike to introduce the Admiral. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Anderson again, President and CEO of Solomon North America. Uh, since the establishment of Saab in 1937, we have grown from a relatively small uh, and dedicated operation building airplanes for the Swedish government to a worldwide global provider of defense solutions over the years. Here in the U.S., we've been active for more than 40 years, 
supplying the U.S. government with our products and technology, often in partnership with the uh, U.S. industry. During that time, uh, we have also been actively promoting not only a close and robust U.S. and Swedish bilateral relationship, but also a strong transatlantic relationship between U.S., Canada, and Europe in general. And that's why our partnership with the Atlantic Council and the Commander Series is so valuable and important for us. Um, and that's also why we're so pleased that so many of you would chosen to come here today on such a gorgeous, nice October afternoon. Thank you very much. With that said, it's now a great pleasure and honor to introduce Admiral William Bill Gortney today. Uh, Admiral Gortney is the commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, better known as NORAD, and the U.S. Northern Command, which he assumed in December last year. Bill Gortney is the son of a retired U.S. Navy captain and a second-generation naval aviator. He's a graduate from Elon College, North Carolina, was commissioned in the United States Naval Reserve in 1977, and earned his naval aviator wings the following year. Since that time, he has served in many significant positions at sea and ashore. Notably, among his several overseas assignments, Admiral Gorney commanded forces in the U.S. Central Command, air job operation, providing support in maritime security operations and combat operations for operations enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom. He also served in the region in various capacities in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. His first flag tour was as the Deputy Chief Staff Global Force Management and Joint Operations, Youth Fleet Forces Command between 2004 and 2006. From 2010 to 2012, he served as Director Joint Staff. His most recent assignment was as a Commander, Youth Fleet Forces Command. Admiral Gourney has flown over 4,300 mishap-free flight hours and completed over 1,200 carrier-arrested landings. Primarily, more than Tim <laughs> excellent. Primarily on the A7 and the FA-18, I understand, right? And um, he's a highly decorated officer, recipient of several service medals. And these are just a few highlights of your very impressive career. And uh, we're very happy that you could join us today. Please join me in welcoming Admiral Gordon to the stage. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Very kind introduction. Okay, turn this thing on. Do you need it in this room? Uh, can you hear me okay? I'm getting a nod from Fossil back there. Well, thanks for that very kind introduction. It's an honor and a privilege. I'm going to step down so I can see you eye to eye. Uh, honor and a privilege to be here with you today. And I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, NORAD and NORTHCOM and the challenges that we are facing and how we go about it. Because most people don't really understand uh, NORAD and NORTHCOM. You know, NORAD, 57 years old, uh, young this, this year, born of the Cold War, shaped by, uh, quite frankly, 9-11. And NORTHCOM, uh, which was born in 9-11 and then shaped by both 9-11 and Katrina, back when Admiral Keating was the, uh, the commander back then. And uh, we've evolved since then. Quite frankly, we've evolved past those particular points. NORAD, most people really know us for one um, no-fail mission, tracking Santa. And if you have kids or grandchildren, you know about that. It is a no-fail mission. I had people calling me once I got announced uh, to this job, and I hadn't heard for years. Don't screw this up. Please don't screw this up. And uh, it's a really fun mission. But um, it is the uh, uh, traditional aerospace defense of both Canada and the United States. 
I actually have to be approved by the Canadian government and my chain of command, uh, U.S., goes up through the Secretary of Defense and the President. And uh, up the Canadian side, it goes up through their, uh, their Chief of Defense, their Chairman equivalent, then their Minister of Defense, and then their Prime Minister. But uh, it goes up both. And so I am a Canadian commander of the Canadian Armed Forces. But it is the traditional uh, aerospace, and predominantly aerospace. We have a maritime warning mission, but we execute that through, through uh, NORTHCOM. NORTHCOM, a little bit more diverse mission set. It encompasses the NORAD mission set, but we execute the aerospace mission inside NORAD. But the rest of the defense of the homeland, um, uh, we execute in the maritime, and in land, we execute that through Northern Command. The, um, when it comes to the, uh, uh, some other additional responsibilities for NORTHCOM, um, I'm the advocate for the Arctic. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, the DOD advocate for the Arctic as an assigned task. Uh, but I also am assigned as to uh, support the lead federal agency and the defense, uh, defense uh, support to uh, civil authorities, DISCA mission. And most people think of that only in the terms of a weather of mass destruction event. But it encompasses uh, far more than that. Anytime that there's a lead federal agency, we are the uh, supporting agency to them for the Department of the Defense. When I look at the aerospace warning mission, uh, quite frankly, the challenge that's confronting us, and I'll throw these uh, uh, and not go too deep unless you want to talk deeper in them in the question and answer period, is the Russian uh, long-range aviation and the uh, Russian cruise missile threat from submarine subsurface platforms and surface platforms. It's a little challenge for us because for 57 years, uh, NORAD has been in a defensive crouch where uh, uh, Soviet uh, and Russian long-range aviation would have to come into our battle space and we would have to deal with them at that. But Russia is delivering qualitatively a much better military than the quantitative military that the Soviet Union had. They have a different doctrine, and you're seeing that qualitatively better military and that doctrine being played out. It's a whole of government approach uh, in the Ukraine and now in Syria. Um, uh, as it comes to the defense for the homeland piece of it, they've uh, read our playbook. And they're uh, putting in force, they're fielding uh, cruise missiles that are very, very accurate, very long range, to the point now where they can, in long range aviation, never leave Russian airspace in range with conventional or nuclear warheads, um, uh, uh, targets uh, in critical infrastructure in Canada, the United States, and the Pacific Northwest, and never leave Russian territory in order to do it. A very, very different mission set for us. It forces us to catch arrows instead of trying to go after where we need to go, which is to shoot the archers. Um, I've been in the cruise missile threat defending since I was a Lieutenant JG, and I've shot over 1,300 cruise missiles in combat. They're very effective, and they're very hard to defend against. And uh, this, is a, this is a particular challenge for, for, for NORAD and, and for Northern Command. Aerospace control. The challenge that we have there, um, uh, it's really born of the 9-11 threat. Uh, uh, the traditional 9-11 uh, airliner uh, threat that we have pretty much in hand. And we've worked our way down into different mission sets to where now the challenge that, uh, that we're working against are here in Washington, D.C., gyrocopters, right? Everybody understands gyrocopters, which we call Little Nelly. Does anybody know why we call it Little Nelly? Any James Bond fans? Live and let die. He's in a gyrocopter. Q made it for him. It shot unlimited bullets and rockets. It was really cool. All right, go Google it. And... Um, but uh, the gyrocopter threat, which is one type of threat. The other one is a low, slow threat. Light sport aircraft, very low radar cross-section, very slow moving, can be mistaken for flocks of geese, uh, and is, we mistake them every single day. 
in the clutter. That's a different target set that we have to worry about. And then another one, not so much in the, in the, in the threat, but as a safety of flight, uh, the uh, quadrocopter, the, uh, the small uh, 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 quadrocopters that Amazon's selling 15,000 a month on. Uh, how, do we, how do we deal with that? So that's that particular threat. When we look at the uh, uh, maritime warning mission, it's the maritime control. It's the intel gaps we have uh, between the uh, U.S. Navy, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, and the Canadian Navy. We're, we're, we, we're, we're pretty well postured to deal with anything that might be coming to the homeland. The question is, what's coming to the homeland? It's the intel gaps that's out there, uh, amount of the maritime traffic that's coming in here. In the homeland defense mission, one of the challenges that we have, quite frankly, is the ballistic missile defense. That's our primary mission. We're postured 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year to deal with, uh, uh, deal with anything that might come out of North Korea at the homelands. And uh, the challenge that we have on that, uh, we have uh, fits, fits and starts, uh, the type fits and stops that, uh, that the problem uh, as we've invested in this uh, weapon system to defend that from the nation. In 2017, I'll have 44 missiles in the ground, most of them up in Alaska at Fort Greeley. The challenge is, is that we're on the wrong side of the cost curve in the ballistic missile defense mission. We're, send, we're, we're, we're posturing ourselves to shoot down not very expensive rockets with very expensive rockets, shooting bullets with a very expensive bullet, bullet on bullet. And, it, and when it, whether it's in the uh, ballistic missile defense of the homeland or the theater ballistic missile defense, when I was in Bahrain, Sherry and our two dogs and myself lived under the Iranian th theater ballistic missile, the challenge is it's still that bullet on bullet, very expensive, wrong side of the cost curve. We need technology, we need policy, we need uh, capabilities that keeps them left of launch, never lets them launch, kills them on the launch pad, gets them in the boost phase, and not relying at end game, which is where we are today, relying on the end game piece. Um, then let's talk about the Arctic. Um, as the advocate, DOD advocate for the Arctic, it's a little difficult because doctrine, you know, we're doctoring people. Well, we're not really in the Navy. We don't like doctrine in the Navy, but. We call it something else, but we're, uh, but doctrinally, there's no term. We don't, it don't, you can't look in the joint pubs and say an advocate is supposed to do this. Uh, that's an advantage and a disadvantage. It, the advantage is it gets us to answer the question the way we want to answer the question. What are what are the capabilities and capacities that we need in the Arctic as the, as the world is changing? The challenge is also those that want us to do more than that can use that, uh, well, you're the advocate, you're supposed to go do this. Um, so that's a challenge. I, I, I will tell you, uh, I took the first commander's review uh, shortly after I got there, and it was a very good advocate role of the NORAD NORTHCOM advocate role of the Arctic, but we're the DOD advocate for the Arctic, so we are reaching out to all of the services and the agencies to answer the capabilities that we need in the Arctic. Right now, it's a harsh place. Uh, in order to, to, if you want to be up there, you have to be able to do three things well. You have to be able to communicate, you have to be able to navigate, and you have to be able to sustain yourself. And those are, those are capabilities that you just have to have. The question is, when do we need those capabilities in the Arctic? We don't want to be late to need, but in a declining budget cycle that we're in, um, uh, we can't afford to invest the services and the agencies too soon. So when is the right time to invest in that? Navy's done a good job. We've put the uh, Navy's put up their fourth communication satellite, and we're actually communicating with the Coast Guard icebreaker uh, when it made its trek to the North Pole, pretty far up, and I won't go into any details beyond that. Uh, but the navigation piece we've got to solve, but the hard one's going to be the sustainment piece. 
it's anywhere from three to 15 times more expensive to, in time and money to operate up in the Arctic. This is, this, there's the Arctic and there's the Arctic Circle. Anytime you're north of the Arctic, anywhere from three to 15, and there's a funny story that goes with that. If you want to hear about it, please ask. And the next uh, mission we do is security cooperation. NORTHCOM is a traditional combatant commander. We have battle space. We have countries assigned. Uh, I'm lucky enough to only have three countries assigned, so we can pay a lot of attention to them. The first is Canada. As a Canadian commander and a Canadian command, binational command, it's pretty easy for that one. Work very closely with Canada. Bahamas, and the, and the third is Mexico. And where we are with Mexico in the last three years, phenomenal in our mill-to-mill -mill relationships. If they made a strategic decision to align themselves with North America and with the United States. You know, with Mexico, we share the same history, we share the same values, we share the same work ethic, and we share the same future. And, uh, uh, and where we are with them, pretty phenomenal, and I look forward to your questions on that. The last one I want to uh, talk to is defense support for civil authorities. Again, too many people think that defense support for civil authorities is a Katrina, a, a, a storm, the storm that we have down in South Carolina right now, or, or an earthquake. That is one of our mission sets, to help the lead federal agency, uh, Homeland Security, and, and to pass it off to FEMA, Craig Fugate, great American story, what the nation's done, what FEMA's done as it's transformed itself since FEMA. It's not told enough uh, to support in that, and we do that. We have forces, DOD forces in alert as we speak, waiting for a request from the state of South Carolina to deal with the massive flooding uh, that they're having down there. Um, should they ask, we'll be there. We're not gonna be late to need. But in the, in the non-traditional role, defense support for civil authorities, this is what, in the, in the defense of the homeland mission, this is what makes NORTHCOM unique from the other geographic combatant commanders. Again, our mission set goes from tracking Santa to thermonuclear war and everything in between. And you can, might be able to fail thermonuclear war, but don't fail that Santa business. And, um, but uh, uh, when it comes to the non-traditional threats to the homeland, in the homeland, we're not in charge. NORTHCOM's not in charge. We are support team to a supported commander. And, uh, and that's why our closest mission partner is Jay Johnson over at Homeland Security, and then working with law enforcement who's really doing the fine fix and finish, the legal finish of this particular threat. And that's a little different for us, uh, for those of us in the military, because it's different than it is when, when you're overseas. And so when we look at uh, that non-traditional threat, you know, we get asked all the time, can you rate the threats to the, what are, what are your threats? And, and I don't rate them one to, one to 20. I go from most likely to most dangerous. And of course, the most dangerous is that thermonuclear war that can annihilate our nation. But it's also the least likely. But the most likely threat is that weather of mass destruction that we're going to be supporting. But when it comes to uh, the non-traditional threat, it is now the uh, threat to the homeland caused by Daesh. And I will not call them ISIL. That gives them too much credit. They don't like the term Daesh, so I call it Daesh. And uh, um, because it more accurately reflects this organization that's out there. But they have a very sophisticated social media campaign that they're motivating citizens from Western nations to do harm to fellow citizens. And they're using a very, very sophisticated and very effective uh, and robust social media campaign. You can look at the Twitter accounts that they have, and it's thousands of Twitter accounts compared to what Al-Qaeda used and threats before them. And it's motivating, again, citizens to do harm to fellow citizens. Um, there's two types of these threats, these homegrown violent extremists. There's the type that we might pick up, and there's the type that we're not. And I'm most concerned about the types that we're not going to pick up. If someone is communicating back to Daesh, 
on, on, on how to, to carry out these attacks uh, to fellow citizens, then we have sensors out there that we have an opportunity, I, I repeat, an opportunity to detect, and law enforcement can work those particular cases. And FBI is doing a phenomenal job at that. I'm here to tell you they're doing a phenomenal job uh, against a phenomenal task. Um, the ones I'm most concerned with, though, are those that we're not detecting, those that are not communicating back, that are in the receive mode of this very sophisticated social media campaign. And, and, and Daesh has actually released public information of service members and their families and said to do harm to these service members and their families. Well, my role, uh, one of my assigned tasks, is, is responsible for the force protection conditions and working with the services of all the DOD and the agencies in the homeland. And I set the force protection condition that the services must follow in order to do that. And this, this um, particular threat, uh, there's so much chatter on the net that a few months back, and I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and then overseas afloat, that I, there was more chatter on the net pointed against service members and our families that I raised the force protection condition that's for the second time since 9-11. Uh, and to force protection, bravo, in a sustainable manner uh, because of this, because of, of this threat. And this unknown threat is the one that was carried out in Chattanooga. The exact very reason for the, the unknown threat, uh, why was this individual motivated to do what he did? Uh, we'll never know, um, but, it's, but he, we do know that he was in the receive mode of this, of this issue. And this goes to how do we counter this particular narrative. You know, Daesh's center of gravity, we're trained to identify the enemy's center of gravity, and then you attack the center of gravity. Well, the center of gravity of Daesh, as it relates here to the homeland, because it's different than the one that's overseas, is their narrative. It's their narrative and the perception of the success of them bringing about, the success of bringing about the caliphate. Narrative and perception. It is a war of the words, okay? And the fact that we uh, have not yet been able to counter that narrative, that someone actually believes that that's a better way of life than the one that they have here in the United States or in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, in Paris, all of who've had attacks from this narrative, really confounds me. And that's why we have to go after countering this particular narrative. And that narrative is only going to be one at the grassroots level, working with the communities. It's intervention. It's intervention by parents family members, clergy, uh, uh, schooling, uh, people that would see that some see this troubled youth that might be radicalized through a, through a cycle of radical, radicalization. Write that down so I can say it correctly. And um, uh, uh, that we have to break that cycle so they don't then act. And it can only be one at the grassroots level, at the local level, at the tactical level. And the government's committed in order to do that. And the challenge here as it comes to me as, as the Northern Command commander is, is that we can't participate in that. We can assist, but we can't participate in that narrative. We have to, um, uh, we're in the, this is, this is where it's different. We, we then overseas, because we're not in charge of that particular effort. And I look forward to your questions on that. And so with that, that's the extent of my prepared remarks. And uh, I look forward to jousting with the master here. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you for that overview. That was terrific. I, I wanted to pick up where you left off okay. with this narrative, because I think that's, that's really important as we see it today, uh, the ISIS, or as you call it, Daesh narrative now. And you alluded to some of the things that have to be done. 
But, but talk about what you see the U.S. government doing, and, and albeit maybe the, the mil U.S. military's role is limited here in the domestic United States. But, yeah. well, but talk about what, what initiatives you're hearing about through the government, through DHS, NCTC. Well, our, our, our um, effort uh, started in 2011 as a nation. And we are currently, the nation is now uh, the government, the whole of government approach in this is going about, is that, is that process from 2011 working? And is, it, uh, is there more things that we can do to be more effective on it? And that's where we are right now. And I'm not able to talk in much more detail than that. But that's what the president has us doing right now, um, a whole of government approach on how that we look at it. And some people may be critical that, well, why are you, why are you changing your approach from 2011? I think the American people want us to change our approach. I mean, we all, in your business, you plan, you execute, you assess, and as you go through the assessment process, can you be better? What is working, what's not working, and let's do it. And that's where we are at this particular point. Can you give us some hint of some, what, where the shift is taking place in terms of the, well, this narrative I, and the I'm, grassroots approach? Uh, uh, I don't have enough detail to give you uh, an indication. Mm -hmm. It isn't that I'm trying to hide it. I just don't have enough detail because we're not, we're not the key support team commander in this effort. I will tell you that uh, uh, we've offered um, uh, planning assistance because we, we know how to plan and know how to assist. Uh, but I don't know if, I, I'm pretty confident we're not the right answer there because of the way this message has to be transmitted and who has to transmit this message. It has to be done at the local level. You know, we're, we're an amazing country. We can sell Coca-Cola anywhere in the world. Uh, but this is not this is not Coca-Cola. Um, uh, we have to go after and break this path of radical, radicalization. It has to be done. It can only be done at the local level, where the local, uh, where the family, the community are the censors, and they determine that there's a troubled youth out there, and then they get that troubled youth on the right path. Mm -hmm. We have tons of process, tons of uh, capability to assist once we've identified the individual. But how do you get? Uh, someone to identify the individual. What if it's your child? Who do you want to go? Do you want to? Do you want to come forward if it's your child? These are tough, tough decisions, mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to be a long slog. Which is why I don't think we'll be coming out of force protection condition Bravo for quite some time yet. So the threat is still at roughly the same level or, I, or greater than only when you because started? we don't know about the threat. You know, we look at threat reports and threat streams. You know, it's 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 never clean. It never, uh, like a story just doesn't come to you, right? You have to go and dig and pull the pieces together. Well, we get little snippets of information for a threat report, or we tie a couple of them together, and that turns it into a stream. But we want to make an objective assessment from a very subjective process. And so what we do is we measure all these threat reports against four attributes, credibility, specificity, imminency, and plausibility. Now, CSIP, now those not, might not be in the right order, but it's the only way I can remember the, the four numbers. But, but what's, what's easy, this is a credible threat and it's a plausible threat. What we're lacking here is the specificity and the imminency, the where and the when. If we have the where and the when, and the FBI has the where and the when, they're gonna do something. If it's targeted against a military installation or a member of our families and we got the where and the when, boy, we're, we're all in, we can do what we need to do. But lacking that where and that when, it's the unknown. And if it's one of these uh, uh, extremists that, again, is motivated just in the receive mode and chooses to go take action, um, uh, that's the concern. And we're never going to have that where and that when against those particular threats. So I've got the, the staff working with the inter, uh, intel community 
on what are the strategic and operational indicators that we might see um, that might get us to, to, to roll back these force protection conditions. And it's going to be pretty glacial because they're strategic uh, and operational indicators, and those things just don't pop out at you. Now you mentioned Chattanooga and the tragedy there this, mm -hmm. this summer and the shootings there. To many people, their, their interaction with the military, to the extent they may have it today, is with these kind of storefront recruiting stations and all. There were some calls to have armed guards mm -hmm. outside. You have some control over that, right? What, what I, do you think should be done in, in moving forward if, if this threat still is at that kind of heightened level? Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, what's interesting is, is that, well, overseas we have three types of risk. Risk of mission, risk to the force executing the mission, and risk to the long-term health of the force. And the combatant commanders and their components own the risk of mission. The service chiefs own the risk, uh, own the risk uh, share the risk to, to the force executing the mission. And then the service chiefs own the long-term health of the force as they're trying to meet the near-term needs of the geographic combatant commanders. It's different for here in the homeland, because I have the authority to close recruiting stations, and I have the authority to harden recruiting stations. But who owns the risk to, the, uh, to that mission of recruiting? I don't own that risk, that mission. The service chiefs do. And so, you know, we put in place measures that are what we call sustainable, that the services can execute over the long haul, because uh, uh, I could mandate something that they can't afford, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work with them. Uh, but they have to determine whether or not um, uh, any of those actions would impact their ability to recruit. They own that risk, that risk of that mission. And so that's why we work very, very closely with the services to determine those, answer those particular questions. Another one are the ROTC units. How would it be if we armed up the uh, ROTC units on our college campuses and we hardened them up? Probably would have an effect on those ROTC units. So I'm not worried about uh, air stations and, and, and naval bases and where we have nuclear weapons. and I'm not worried about those. We, and no one's that dumb to come after those targets. Um, uh, it's those what we call soft targets, recruiting stations, ROTC units. Our families live out. Most of, most of our families, us and our families, live outside the wire with the community. You know, those are the targets that I'm, I'm most concerned with, and we have to work with the services on those answers. I'm going to pull back now from the threat inside the country to one of the, the major threats that you're talking about here from outside, and that is Russia. And what, what is going on here? You mentioned the cruise missile threat. Uh, we, I know in our previous conversations, we've talked about their long-range bombers this summer flying uh, within 40 miles of the San Francisco Bay Area right mm -hmm. on the 4th of July. That's correct. Coincidental. Um, Wishing but, the pilots happy birthday. But and now, as you, as you mentioned in your remarks, we have the Russians becoming much more involved in Syria. I, I want you to draw on your, your expertise both from your days in the Middle East and kind of what you're watching there, but also you've probably had to become a student, as many of us have, of, of Vladimir Putin and trying to divine in some way what is in his mind. What is he up to here? What's his end game, if you will, from what you've seen in your time obviously kind of watching mostly from the NORTHCOM hat. What, what do you think is going on in Moscow? Well, first off, I, I'm a firm believer that if you want to defend the, the nations, you do it a, as an away game. It's most effective on the away game where the root causes are. Uh, and so um, I tell all my friends overseas, you know, the UCOM commander, the CENTCOM commander, the African commander, AFRICOM commander, the, the PACOM, please fix your country so my job can get a lot easier, please. They, um, they fail to see the humor in it. Um, 
but as you look into the Middle East, you know, we're seeing, um, uh, we're seeing a shift in the Middle East. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a generational shift. Uh, and it's a war between haves and have-nots, un unfortunately, which we have debates in this country between haves and have-nots. But what you're seeing over there is the uh, shift of the traditional Shia, Shuni, uh, Shia and Sunni um, leadership role, haves and have-nots. It's divided along religious lines. And it's going to have to play out for a while before we see what's going to happen. Now, this, 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 um, this uh, uh, battle between Shia and Sunni has been going on for a few centuries. So it's not going to get solved anytime, anytime sooner. Um, when I look at uh, uh, Putin, I'm a history major. My father bought my degree. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, between the time that the fall of the, uh, of the Berlin Wall and Putin coming to power, I believe was, help me out here, Polad, um, seven years? Seven years is a blink of an eye in the war between nation states. It's only been 25 years from the fall of the Soviet Union. And you think back, how long does it take in history for us to really see the uh, ramifications of a fall of an empire? Now, we're, we're from America. You know, we're fast food, ATM machines. You know, we, we, everything's instantaneous. But you really think about the ramifications of it. We're just now seeing the ramifications. Putin's shaped by that. And uh, so is his leadership and his military leadership. They think that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest travesty in the history of Russia. And, uh, and they want to make up for it. What's interesting this time, though, is that you're not seeing him bring back the Soviet Union. You look at the tapestry and the symbolism, it's czarist Russia. And so I really think that um, uh, what you see and what they're trying to do is right at the core of the Russian DNA. Um, that, uh, that Russia's had since, uh, since the Tsar's time. So, so that's how it's playing out. And they have a pretty tight decision-making cycle. They don't have a balance of power as we know it, right? Which we know gets to the right decision eventually, um, but it just doesn't come quick. We don't even, his decision-making cycle is him. And he's opportunistic. If he seizes an, if he sees an opportunity, he's going to move into that particular space. Um, yeah, you know, the Ukraine was an opportunistic move. He, there was no planning for that. It, he saw an opportunity and he took it. And I think he saw an opportunity in his eyes in Syria, and that's why he moved in there. One, he's been a loyal ally there for a long time. It's his only Mediterranean port uh, for his Navy that's been there, and there's been a huge amount of advisors that are in there. And it really comp complicated a very complicated situation. You know, when you look into Syria and Iraq, you know, we have to remember, wh why have we been hesitant of, uh, of, of going in there? Um, why, have we, uh, how have, why have we been criticized um, uh, for not going in there? And you have to ask yourself that, um, all right, we want to deal with Daesh. How long do you think it would take for the United States Army and the Marine Corps and combined arms to take care and plant those guys? How long? I'd give us, I'm not that good. Uh, I'd give 60 days. And then what? And then what? We weren't happy for the phase four, how long it was after we went into Iraq. And this is, a, this is a, again, a shift uh, uh, within the Middle East uh, of the power struggle between Shia and Sunni 
Um, and we're going to be there for a really long time this time. And that's really the cause. That's what causes me pause. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in terms of his deployments, these long-range bomber flights, the yeah. other things, do you see this as, as basically putting the United States on notice that we, I am trying to reestablish this old power? No. Or do you actually see, I how see much him. of a, a real threat to the homeland do you, do you see these? He's messaging us. So he's telling us that he's a global power. Um, and, uh, you know, when, they sh when the airline was shot down, he flew long-range aviation down the English Channel, and he was off of Canada and Alaska at the, right after that. He's messaging us. Fourth of July, he's off of San Francisco. Happy birthday to you American pilots. Same time, he ca uh, Putin called the president. Exact same time. I don't think that was a coincidence. You know, he's messaging us. We message, too. We do Freedom of Navigation Acts. We do long-range aviation flights. We do the same sort of thing. He's doing the same thing to us. My question is, why, what happens in a crisis? In their doctrine, much like the Chinese doctrine, they're going to escalate in order to de-escalate. They will kinetically escalate, uh, kinetically escalate in a crisis to de-escalate the crisis. And, um, uh, and my question is, is, now, what if they do that in one of our crises? What if he sh uh, shoots a conventional cruise missile? Um, to maybe not so important critical infrastructure in Alaska, what would that do to our national decision-making cycle? I think we need to work our are way through that. Are you wargaming that? that? Uh, we're, yeah, we are working our way through that, as a matter of fact. Um, because what, I, what, what are the results? What happens? Well, that's classified, Eric. <laughs> I can't tell you. You know what it does do? But does it end badly? I mean, or is it... Uh, uh, I mean, how no, does this, what it does is it, is it freezes our decision-making cycle. Is it an Article 5 declaration? Is there an Article 5 declaration out of that if he takes out Cobra Dane in Alaska? Um, in the Aleutians, you know, and, and in, our, in our war games, uh, Jeff can tell you, it froze the decision-making calculus as we try and get to an answer. And, you know, that's, you want to stay inside your, your opponent's decision-making cycle. That's the whole purpose, if you can stay inside that cycle. We're never going to be inside of his cycle because he's the cycle. Uh, but we need to tighten up ours a little bit. And we have time, I think, we have time to work our way through those, you know, those decisions, and that's what we're working through. Let me just tick through a few of the other threats. Uh, one that's often related to the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the cyber threat. Yeah. Talk about NORTHCOM's role in, within the U.S. government in terms of both def defense. Yeah, I, I only have two assigned tasks when it comes to cyber. One is to protect my networks. Uh, and I have, under NORTHCOM, I have no NORAD cyber tasks. And, and then the second task is to support the lead federal agency in the physical aftermath of a cyber attack. And, um, uh, and we're going to do those two particular tasks. The second one we do, we're, we're ready to do any, any particular day. And I can tell you our networks, we're, we work pretty hard to protect our own on our own networks. I think the cyber threat, though, I'm trying to shift the conversation a little bit, little bit beyond that. I don't think we have a true understanding of our interdependencies of the critical infrastructure that we are relying upon in order to do our mission. Now, we have a list of critical infrastructure that we want to protect. I personally think that's about 20% of the stuff we need to protect because I don't think we fully understand, again, those interdependencies that we have in the public and private sector that we are relying upon. I'll give you one. If there is a cyber attack that brings down the Ottawa power grid, the northeast quadrant of the United States, I can't, I can't defend. I'm relying upon that power grid. Think about the, in order to do uh, defense support for civil authorities, we want to move by rail. What if there's a cyber attack on a rail installation? Um, you know, these are, these are, uh, uh, these are um, privately held companies that uh, need to ensure that they can function. 
and we may not know we are reliant upon that particular comp company just because of those interdependencies. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think we need to go. We need, we need stricter uh, cyber policy and cyber laws in our nation to harden up those particular targets. The, uh, the U.S. and China recently struck a deal when the Premier was here talking about <coughs> cyber arrangements. DNI Clapper raised some issues, I think, about whether he, how confident he was that that would hold. Do you share some of the reservations about that as you look at, as you look at China and this particular responsibility you have? Um, they're robbing our intellectual capital blind. The Chinese are? Chinese are. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, they can't keep their, uh, their industry moving without robbing our intellectual capital from our private industry. And uh, they're robbing us blind. Um, they're going to have to show me that they're going to stop. I just don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. You mentioned North Korea in your, in your remarks. You've talked before about your belief in the assessment in U.S. intelligence mm -hmm. community that the North Koreans have successfully miniaturized a nuclear warhead to put on one of these long-range missiles. There's talk of a, an impending missile test coming up. What do you make right now of the, of the North Koreans, uh, their intents, the, intentions? I agree with the uh, intel community that we assess that they have the ability, they have the weapons, that they have the ability to miniaturize those weapons, and they have the ability to put them on a, uh, a rocket that can range the homelands. Mm -hmm. um, and as the defender of, of North America, uh, the United States officially in a ballistic missile defense, I think the American people expect me to take the threat seriously, and so that's what we do. It's the pragmatic, it's the right approach. Um, the question is, is when will he use it? Why would he use it? Uh, those are all questions that no one really understands because no one really understands uh, the great leader. I look longingly for the predictable nature of the great leader's father. Um, uh, yeah, some of you got that. Um, the, uh, uh, so I, I just don't know, but we're ready for him, and we're ready 24 hours a day should he be dumb enough to shoot something at us. Talk a little bit about the, trying to get inside the head of yet another uh, dictator, Kim Jong-un. How does that work here, and, and what, is there any insights that you can, you can take away from, from him now that he's been in power a couple of years? Uh, again, um, he's solidifying his power base. Um, his form of non-judicial punishment is pretty interesting, shooting people with uh, anti-aircraft guns. Um, uh, and I just, he, he is just not predictable. Um, and so, you know, we, we can live with some pretty ugly opponents as long as they're predictable. This guy, we just can't, I just can't predict. Now, fortunately, I just have to deal with the receiving end. To get the real answer, you need to talk to Harry Harris at Paycom. Mm -hmm. um, it's his problem. Uh, that ends up here. Um, but uh, I tell you, it's just a very, very unpredictable and unstable situation over there. People forget that the peninsula, it's an armistice. So when we look at, we look at phases of war, phase zero, phase one, escalation, phase the crisis, the escalation, decisive, and phase four, the restoration. Where are we on the peninsula? Where's an armistice in that? It sure isn't phase zero. They're somewhere between phase one and phase two. And the South Korean government's not putting up with it anymore. And, uh, and so it's pretty unstable there on the peninsula. You just need to go around the world and, and see the, the, uh, the threats that my shipmates that are overseas are dealing with. You know, coming out of every major war, there's a 27 to 32% reduction out of, our, out of our budget. This goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And, and so we need to accept that. But 
what's different this time, as, we've come in, as we're coming out of 14 years of war, usually when you come out of war, you're in a better international security environment than when you went into war. And that's just not the case. You just go around. You look at, you look at, 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 uh, at the Korean Peninsula. You look at, uh, at China and the South China Sea. That's phase one. That's not phase zero. Um, uh, you go, uh, you look at, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan and India. It, you know, they've never been great friends the last time I checked. Uh, you look at what's uh, uh, the ongoing fight and, uh, and effort in Afghanistan. You look at ISIL, uh, Daesh. Um, you look at Iran, uh, the nuclear question, and state-sponsored terrorism, which is, there's no question about that from Iran. You look at the mass migration challenges in Af out of Africa into, into southern Europe transnational criminal networks, you know, it's, it's, the world is pretty unstable right now, and I think it goes back to, it's only been 25 years from, from the good old days of the stable, you know, predictable uh, Cold War. I think we're seeing 25 years later uh, mm -hmm. the ramifications of, of the fall of that particular era in our history. The, the Arctic is a lot in the minds of many right now, both the challenges and the opportunities. Talk a little bit more about this advocacy job. You have advocate for the for the Arctic and, and where that's taking the defense yeah, department. Yeah, we're, we're taking this uh, on a fact-based approach. Because, you know, when you look at the Arctic, there's two schools of thought. The extremes are uh, people are going to go there for their summer vacation instead of the Bahamas next year. And there's another group that says, well, it's no different. It's hard ice. Uh, and so, of course, like in most, most issues, the center is where the truth is. Um, actually, it's more dangerous up there than it's ever been. Um, uh, it's it's uh, the, the impact. There's no question in our mind that the Wait, Arctic is... Why is it more dangerous? Uh, because it's not hard ice anymore. So I was meeting with the, uh, the last senator from uh, Colorado, and he's an outdoor enthusiast, and he has a friend that tries to go to the North Pole every year, and he started off on snowmobiles, and now he has to wear a dry suit um, because uh, uh, and, and uh, going in and out of crevices and things of that nature. It's very, very dangerous out there. Um, and so what we need to know is when do we, how, what are the ramifications in that, and when do we need to lay in those resources in order to, to deal with it? Uh, the, the question, you know, the Arctic is so important uh, for the defense of the homeland because of its location. It, uh, it's an avenue of an attack from space um, uh, and, through, and from the air. The world's round. It's a good avenue of attack. That's the strategic importance of Alaska for us. It's also the place where interests and geography intersect. And where those interests are is the, the science of where does a continental shelf end and where does a continental shelf start. And in the Arctic, they're all gonna show up together. Now, all of the nations have decided uh, to agree the international governance structure to arbitrate those. Us in Canada have a dispute, I think, in three areas. And um, as long as the nations choose to use it that way, then, uh, then we'll be okay as, as, a, as a flashpoint. There that forum's be been effective so far? Uh, I think the science is still too young. I think there's, uh, um, they're, still, they're still working through it because uh, uh, it's different. And once again, it's science, and there's probably some sub sub subjectivity and not physics in that science. Uh, but everybody's agreed to use it on that regard. Shell just pulled out. They were doing mm -hmm. their, their uh, exploratory, I think, three or four wells. And they just decided they're not going to do it. And uh, it'd be interesting to see that. When will people go back up there? I think that's a good question to ask. We'll just have to wait and see, because everybody was waiting to see what Shell was going to do. You, you talked about the Russians probably getting more involved in, up in there. Obviously, they've 
their territory mm -hmm. extends well up into the, the Arctic area. Um, do you see the United States getting more involved in a military way up there? And is there a potential for the militarization of the Arctic? Well, I think we already have militarized the Arctic. Their boomers are under the ice. Our submarines are where their boomers are. So uh, it's in a, uh, from the air and space, it's an attack vector. So I'd have to say it's already militarized. Name a domain that someone hasn't militarized if they see, a, if see an advantage tactically, operationally, or strategically. So I think that's a moot point. The question is, is there a flashpoint uh, up there for us? I will tell you, um, if we get to shooting, yes, there'll be some, there'll be some bears going down, guarantee it. Um, the, uh, but the, the, the question I get asked is, what are they doing along their Arctic bases? And what they're doing in their Arctic bases is they're um, putting money back into, into facilities that they let atrophy after the fall of the Cold War. Now, they have the longest um, uh, ice-free zone, longest time, but they need that in order to get their resources out and their resources back in. So they have every reason to do that. Um, uh, they have the longest land mass on the uh, second longest land mass on the Arctic. The longest is Canada. Um, uh, not by as the crows flies, but if you go by pure territory. Um, so uh, I don't have any problem with them investing up there. Did I tell you it's somewhere between three and 15 times more expensive in time and money, closer to the 10 to 15 than the three? And if they want to invest their defense dollars up there, let them. They're not investing them somewhere else. The, uh, the president. Oh, right, you mentioned in your remarks about a story. Yeah, well, when I got there, my staff said it was three, three times more expensive, and I go up to Enyavec, which is the northernmost NORAD and Canadian Air Force Base, 6,000 feet long, north of the Arctic Circle. And I'm with a Canadian Special Forces one-star who's assigned to the Joint Staff, and he says, no, it's 10 times more expensive. So I said, okay, that's good enough for me. He's operated up there somewhere between 3 and 10. Three weeks ago, I had the two-star, head of the Canadian uh, Intel Center, who, when he was a battalion commander, um, uh, he needed to move his battalion six, uh, in Canada 600 nautical miles north. And he said it was 15 times more expensive in time and money to move it to Afghanistan than it was to move it 600 miles north in Canada. So, I mean, they've done it. They've been responsible for the math. So I use 3 to 15, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. But it's expensive in time and money. You get up to Inuvik, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Everything's built on stilts. They have about 45 days in, in the summer where they can barge in all the fuel that they're going to need for the entire year, and then it goes, it goes as ice is over again. We go to a, uh, to a hotel um, uh, that evening, and we pull up, and it, the building looks just like everything else in the town. And I said, this is the hotel? And they said, yeah, we don't ship pretty up here. It's got to be functional. Um, it is a harsh place. Canada pays uh, 14,000 Canadian to every one of their uh, citizens for every uh, man, woman, and child that li will live up there. A lot of kids. I said, where do you get the teachers? They said, we pay them a lot of money. So it's a harsh place. And, and, and um, uh, you know, we, we'll figure out the communication and navigation. The sustainment piece. The sustainment piece is going to be the long pole in the tent. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience in just a minute, but I want to ask the Admiral one last question. That is, as we sit here in Washington, we're watching the President and his national security team wrestle with what seemed an interminable number of crises. You've got the situation in Iraq and in Syria, of course, now apparently more complicated by the Russian involvement. 
you had the tragedy in, in Afghanistan and Kunduz and the, the questions before the president about how many forces to keep in, the, in Afghanistan going after next year. Tell us what it's like to be in the room, whether it's the Situation Room or via VTC with President Obama, what his style's like, what kind of questions he asks you as a commander. Never been in the room. Okay. Got an interview and that was it. Yeah. Next question. Yeah, what was it like? What, what, kind, of, what kind of guy is he? Uh, I was, well, when I interviewed with him, um, I was struck uh, by how tired he was. And so when was this? Oh, let me see, that would have been back in, uh, August, September of last, maybe a year ago. So pick a crisis, mm -hmm. and you can figure out what he was tired about. Mm -hmm. um, I was struck by how tired he was. Immense challenges that are out there. Um, and we're here to give him the best military advice that we possibly can. I don't hear from him much from NORAD and NORTHCOM or from Washington, D.C., and as my old J-5, that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, if, uh, if anybody here in Washington, D.C. hears from NORTHCOM or NORAD, and it's not tracking Santa, it's not a good day for America. And, um, and so uh, we're okay not being in the press. We're okay with not being in the, in the VTCs. The American people and the Canadian people need to know if they need us, we're there. We'll be ready. And we exercise and we work real hard to be ready. But we're not looking for press because, once again, it's a bad day for America if you're talking NORTHCOM. Well, Admiral, thank you very much for this discussion. I'd like to open it up to the audience now. We're going to have some microphones going around. Uh, please stand and just uh, introduce yourself, if you would, and, and please keep it to a question, not a statement. Um, do we have? Yeah, okay. How about right here? Peter Husey from the Air Force Association. I don't want to complicate your life, but when you look south, we don't have early warning radars or defenses, and the North Koreans, as you know, have launched this rocket in a southerly direction. Where is that on your priority list to either recommend or look at defenses looking south, whether uh, radars or interceptors? Yeah, well, it goes to, um, I need sensors where I predict the threat is and where the threat's gonna be. So in that particular regard, I don't necessarily see that as, a, at a, as an insurmountable problem given other priorities that are out there. Okay. Right here. Hi, I'm Blake. Uh, first, thanks for your service. Um, I'm from Senator Tim Kaine's office, so you've probably heard similar questions in, in hearings, but um, what are the biggest gaps that you're seeing in readiness when it comes to this budget environment, particularly with your support of uh, civil defense? Um, you know, DOD gets relief from the budget constraints through um, OCO funding to support that 050 okay. budget activity, whereas you know, a lot of your partners in the in the home front, the FBI, DHS, you know, they don't get similar support. Um, they don't get similar relief. So what are the major gaps in readiness that you're seeing because of this budget environment that we have right now? Well, um, when I testified to the SASC uh, in my opening statement, I went through the threats to the homeland from the most likely to the most dangerous. <coughs> and this was back in, when did I testify, Jeff? March timeframe. And I went through the most likely, the most dangerous threats that I see them to NORAD and NORTHCOM. But I said the most likely and the most dangerous threat to NORAD and NORTHCOM and our ability to execute our mission is sequestration. And I firmly believe that. And that's because NORTHCOM and NORAD, we don't own forces. I actually only muster about 2,500 a day 
predominantly doing the Noble Eagle mission and the Ballistic Missile Defense mission, and they're predominantly guardsmen, soldiers and airmen, and they do phenomenal work for us. The rest of it is service, uh, service retained, which means the services come help me do my mission, they report back to the services and it's funded through the services. It's not, it's not my money. And most of that, that when they come, they're training themselves to then go forward deploy, if that makes sense. So they're receiving training doing my mission that we have, whether it's on a border or whether it's our mill-to-mill -mill with, uh, with Mexico, mill-to-mill -mill training activity with Mexico and with the Bahamas. Sequestration happens. The only place the services can get money is out of operations and maintenance, which is where that work comes from. I know because of my last job, I was Fleet Forces Command, the readiness provider for the Navy, and that's what I had to cut back on, and part of the stuff I had to cut back on was support to Chuck Jacoby, who is, who is my predecessor, who I worked for. So um, that impact on me doing that, as well as my ability for them to do the work for defense support for civil authorities, and then the impact on my mission partners who are doing that work, Homeland Security, you know, Coast Guard's not going to get funded. My gosh, that is a terrible problem for us and all of the elements of Homeland Security and, and law enforcement. Uh, so that's, and that all gets impacted by sequestration. So it has huge impacts. The other are the impacts overseas. And so did I tell you this is an away game? Homeland Defense is an away game. And so... Uh, uh, I wasn't worried about the naval forces in the away game. I was worried about who their release are going to be. They're tr the guys that were there are trained, guys and gals are trained, ready to go. When am I going to be able to bring them home? And when is their readiness level going to atrophy? So that's why I advocate for, uh, to give the services an MDA uh, uh, the money that they need in order to do the missions that the nation's asking them to do. And as long as the services uh, uh, get that get the money that they say they need, and MDA gets the money that they need because they provide the ballistic missile defense mission for me, we'll be able to do the mission uh, uh, for the nation. Right here. Thanks, sir. Andrea Shalal with Reuters. Um, I wanted to draw you back to the area of missile defense and your comment about being forced to sort of shoot at the arrows instead of the, um, you know, the Wrong side of the cost curve. Wrong side of the cost curve. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are a lot of emerging threats. What's your current understanding of how far along North Korea is in terms of developing warheads that would shoot multiple? Um, well, we assess that they have the capability to reach the homeland with a nuclear weapon from a rocket. We assess that they have that capability. We put in place the systems to deal with that, uh, and that's what we're prepared to do. So um, uh, the question is, is that the path that we're on, that we've been put on, is, uh, is very expensive. Excuse me. <coughs> Pardon. Um, I'm allergic to you, Eric. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, we're on that wrong side of that cost curve. Uh, we, have, we have to invest on being able to defeat that threat through multiple, uh, multiple times through its, uh, its, engage, uh, its uh, flight path from before it launches to where we do now at, at Endgame. And we need to be able to put more warheads up in space, and we need better sensors to discriminate what is a warhead and what is a decoy or, or, a fa or, a, or just a piece of debris. So we knock those threats out before they get to the homeland. So I mean, the, just the, I guess the question is, is you know, you're, you've had a long delays in terms of getting those uh, interceptors, getting everything ready. Those interceptors haven't proven as reliable. You've done some testing now, but there's still 
a lot of problems in terms of, you know, your shot doctrine in terms of being able to shoot the interceptors. You know, how far behind are you and how quickly are they pacing? Well, I'm pretty comfortable with our shot doctrine. It's pretty well modeled by MDA. And I won't go into the specifics of that because we're in an open forum. I'm pretty confident that we're going we're gonna to knock down um, uh, the numbers that are going to be shot at us. Uh, the challenge is, is and I, I'm not going to make excuses for um, uh, how we got where we are. I, I couldn't even paint that story for you very well of the politics and decisions and why they were made and the funding. But we are where we are. And I'm completely aligned with Admiral Jim Searing, who's the, in charge of MDA, in command of MDA. And, and what we testified for and what we have in the current NDAA is, is the proper funding in three areas. The first, and, they have, and they're not in order. They all have to be done concurrently. First is, we want to make what we have as best as we can possibly make it. So that modernizing it and its, its, uh, its operations and its maintenance and the testing of it, we want to make what we have as the best we can possibly make it. We want to invest in better sensors. Okay? Those are, those are necessary investments no matter where we go. We want to have better sensors so that we can, we can see better and that gives us, makes us, uh, allows us to make better decisions with what we have. And then we need the necessary investments in the future to get us on the correct side of the cost curve, you know, you know, to engage this particular threat. And what's important about that is that those technologies not only uh, will play out not only in the ballistic missile defense for the homeland, but the theater ballistic missile defense for our forces that are overseas that live under those threats today as well. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, in the NDA, as it's currently standing, all of those investments are in there for MDA. And we're grateful for, for, a legislator, for our legislators to, to put that in there. Um, and, we want, and we'll be okay. The challenge is with sequestration for MDA is that they don't have the big ops and maintenance account that the surface can go to to, pay the, to make the bad business decisions that the law forces us to make. They'll have to go to those new starts. And that goes into the sensors, and it's going to go into that uh, getting on the correct side of the cost curve for those particular missions. Over here. Hi, uh, Brian Everstein with Air Force Magazine. Uh, earlier you talked about the threat of cruise missiles and the need to shoot down the Archer. And earlier this year you signed an order for upgraded ASA radars for your F-16s. I was wondering if you can give us an, upgrade, an update on where that stands. The, um, uh, uh, as, as it stands right now, funding for the ASA is in there, the ASA radars. But they're not in conflict. Again, this is, you want to be able to... Um, it, it's a kill chain. Your opponent has a kill chain. And, and, he, and your opponent has to put in place and do everything along this in order for uh, the, the weapon to have an effect. And what we want to be able to do is break that kill chain in as many places as we possibly can. Okay? So the AESA is an end game break. And so we want to have AESA on our F-16s that defend a national capital region. Quite frankly, we want AESA uh, uh, capability on all of our fourth gen fighters because they're going to go overseas and fight the fight. We want to have, and so, but for the national capital region, we want them end game for that particular piece. We also want the ability to kill that archer uh, long before so that that AESA equipped um, uh, uh, F-16 or F-15 or F-18 is, is dealing with a leaker and not dealing with a salvo. Does that make sense? So I want to start knocking them down as far as we can. And so those are the investments we've asked for to counter that kill chain. Okay. 
in the back, Jim. <clears throat> Thanks, sir. Hi, Admiral. Good to see you again. Um, it, it's uh, North America is more than just the uh, United States and Canada. There is Mexico. So I'm yeah. just curious. You, you mentioned that you're having excellent relations with uh, with uh, Mexico now. Five years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Um, could you give us a little more detail on that? And sort of a second question, I guess, is a, a lot of the threats that come through Mexico originate in the area that's covered by U.S. Southern Command. I'm just curious about your relationship okay. with the folks there. Mexico and then John Kelly. Right. Right? right. Okay. The, um, uh, about three years ago, Mexico made a strategic decision to align themselves with, with North America and particularly with the United States for the reasons that I talked about in my opening statement. And it's showing itself out. Now, we're responsible for the mill-to-mill -mill relationship, working with Sedena and Samar, their, uh, their uh, Army and Air Force and their Navy and their Marine Corps. Um, and that, and it's, it's, it's unheard of. You said five years ago, I'd say three years ago, we, would, we wouldn't see what we're seeing today. Um, General Cienfuegos and Admiral Soberon are friends. It's very clear to me they're friends uh, in my engagements with them. And uh, they are committed to do what their nations ask them to do, to work on their internal problems, while they still want to be a big army and a big navy, uh, to, be, to be outwardly focused as well as they're in, in, in inwardly focused for the fight that their nations ask them to fight. Uh, our, our metrics, foreign military sales between H-60s, Humvees, ammunition, the training we're doing with them, uh, the Ops Intel fusion process as they're working that internal fight, outstrip the capability that we've given them. They've just embraced it and are running with it. Um, and they're taking bad people off the battlefield. They're taking bad people off the battlefield. They're having great effects. So uh, uh, what, what, if I could ask for anything when I, when I work the Hill, is the, is the, is the government the government? We need, we need continued political pressure, political to political, government to government pressure, to get the other elements of, of power, uh, other departments within, within Mexico, um, uh, to tackle the individual challenges that they all are confronted. Now, let's not be naive. This is a long fight that they're in. This is a long fight. And we need to be right there with them to help them where they want to help, where they want help, at the pace that they want help. I learned when I was in Bahrain, first time working for Admiral Keating as his chief of staff, um, was that you only go as fast as your partners want to go. And if you try and go faster than your partners want to go, it takes you longer to get there. Uh, and so, w once again, we're engaged with them with probably 10 to 15 training teams every single day. And, uh, uh, and, and, and they, they want to help. They want the training and they're employing that training. But it's so successful, we're treating them like we do other regular militaries. November the 13th, um, I was driving down there two trips ago and I noticed that at their military academy they have a football field, an American football field. So I asked General Cienfuegos, hey, you want to play some football? How about Army-Navy? And so I'm taking the Na U.S. Naval Academy Sprint football team, which are 170 and below, on November the 13th, and we're going to go play an Army-Navy game against uh, the Mexican military cadets. It's going to be a lot of fun. John Kelly, the threat from the south. Yeah, what you're seeing um, uh, uh, predominantly in the migration um, is from uh, the very poor conditions in Central America. That's the cause. That's the root problem there. And uh, immense challenges. And, and, and John Kelly is doing a phenomenal job tackling those immense challenges, partnering with those nations in order to do it. Um, 
in order to help them along. Uh, uh, John Staff and myself met with Sedana and Samar. They flew, Sedana and Samar flew to my headquarters uh, to brief us on our southern border campaign. What does the campaign structure look like? Um, uh, who's responsible for it? What is Sedana and Samar's relief in that? And we noticed that we want to partner um, with, uh, uh, together, John Kelly's staff and mine, with, uh, with Mexico and then with the Central American countries and tackle this in a more holistic, more holistic manner. And that's where we're off to. They're doing pretty. They're they're being they're they're far more effective than than they want to give themselves credit to, uh, but I was very impressed with uh, uh, their border efforts and what they've done over the last two years. When I was down on their Mexican Guatemalan border and seeing seeing those particular challenges, pretty pretty impressive. Can they do more? Absolutely. Are they working it hard? They're working it as hard as they've got uh, the time and the money in order to do it. Um, John and I, uh, we have a, v a video teleconference once a month. I, that seems between geographic combatant commanders is a pet peeve of mine. And so we get together uh, in a VTC once a month, which forces good behavior from the staffs to interact. Um, uh, uh, we do the same thing with Paycom and with Stratcom on, a, on an every <coughs> other month basis uh, because that's the necessity. You know, if you look into your seams, you'll find your enemy. And we don't want those seams, we want to look into those seams. And when it comes to the threats coming up through that area, um, you know, we're focused on the drugs, but we don't want to be exclusively focused on the drugs because drugs is a means for us to look into those seams and look left or the right for the nefarious activity that someone may use those seams against us. Uh, the, the, the heroin um, production of, of uh, methamphetamines in Mexico, whose precursors come from China, and uh, the heroin that is being produced, and both of them being coming up real huge challenge that both of our nations must work together to tackle. Over here. Yeah, I'm Bukhtan Kruko. I'm a retired teacher from Toronto. I need your response uh, regarding Putin's denials. Uh, they're becoming numerous and uh, I'm just questioning whether um, you're doing enough or whatever agency should be doing is doing enough to provide concrete evidence and put it forth that would challenge those denials because there's a lot of uh, uh, military support, military people in Ukraine, uh, and um, he's been caught, uh, you know, denying a, a lot of, there's a lot of provocation, and now currently uh, we've got um, some mixed messages and denials. What, uh, what uh, can you do? And if I need your response, first of all, regarding all this, and then what can you do to put forth concrete evidence that would challenge this? Because I don't see enough evidence in the press he's getting uh, equal press. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I don't claim to be an expert on Putin or Russia. So I'll put that out as a disclaimer on that. Um, but I do have an opinion. They don't care if they tell the truth. If, if a lie works for them, they're going to tell a lie. Who are they transmitting that message to? And do they people care? They're just going to take it as for face value. You know, perception's reality. So he doesn't care what he's saying. He's, is he marketing, is he telling that message to us or is he telling that message to his people? I'd say he's targeting his people and it's taken the effect. You look at his popularity, his popularity is 90, yeah, 90s, right mid 90s. So they're buying it. Um, uh, so our challenge is, is, is to tell the truth. You know, uh, we, we live in the greatest country in the world. We, we live in a democratic society, which may not pre be pretty all the time, like currently, but we eventually get to the right answer. 
It's the checks and balances that gets there. And we are blessed with a free press, right, who tell the truth, who get the truth out most of the time. And um, it was a joke, Eric. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, uh, but they don't have that free press. They, they, they can say whatever they want. They control the media. This is part of their doctrine, which is a whole of government approach. And a key element of it is their messaging, is their communication. Uh, and they don't have to tell the truth. Uh, and so it's imperative that we continue to tell the truth, you know, and if you talk to General Breedlove, uh, uh, the SACT commander, he works with, the, he works with uh, his NATO leadership in telling the truth as he knows it, the, the truth in the classified forum, this is the real truth, this is what's really happening. Um, uh, but you still, whoever, you can, you, 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 can, you can try and sell water, but if people don't want to drink it, they're not going to drink it. Um, uh, and so we just have to continue pressing to tell the truth um, and, and, and point out when they're not telling the truth, they're not telling the truth. But again, we say it and he doesn't care because he's marketing to a different audience. We've got time for about one more question. Is there one last question out there? Anybody uh, burning desire? Okay, one more right here. So just a quick question on the Arctic. Um, you know, the president has called for increased investment in icebreakers. And you've talked a little bit about the kind of, you know, investment that the Russians are making in that region. Um, how, how imperative is that to you? And then just to follow up on your earlier point about the NDAA, the president has threatened to veto that bill. Um, what will that do if that bill does not, isn't enacted and you wind up with a long-term CR? or something short of an NDA in terms of your um, confidence now in terms of the investments that you say you need both in sensors and radars? Well, we don't, we don't set the priorities. Our elected leadership set the priorities, and we'll, we'll fund to the priorities. Um, as a naval officer, uh, we, we don't have any icebreakers. We don't have a mission for icebreakers. It's the, it's the Coast Guard's mission. Coast Guard, if, if, if that's a priority, then Homeland Security needs to be funded to fund the Coast Guard to, to build the icebreakers. Um, uh, but right now, we don't see a need. As a, I'm speaking for John Richardson, who's the Chief of Naval Operations, but we don't have icebreakers in our budget because we don't see it as one of our, one of our uh, critical uh, uh, capability and capacity shortfalls. Um, uh, but I can, but if... We're, we're up there today, ma'am. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I don't see that because in our in our in our nation that role is is assigned to the United States Coast Guard. Now, if somebody wants to assign it to the United States Navy, then they can assign it to the United States Navy. But also the resources and capability and capacity in order to do that, because if if we get that, if the Navy gets that, then what is it that you want your Navy not to do? I mean, that's the question you need to ask. And these are, these are trades. You know, there's a, again, 27 to 32% reduction in the budget coming out of war. There's going to be some tough trades. Uh, and the tough decisions need to be made. And I, as, as we look forward, I, I recommend that we make all these decisions and we make, we make them based on reversibility. Don't make an irreversible decision. The situation's going to change. Did we think the world order, the international security environment is going to be the way it was today? Did we predict it three years ago? I don't think so. You know, who would want to be an intel officer or a weather guy? They get it wrong all the time. And uh, so, uh, um, uh, you know, irreversible decisions you better think real hard about. 
and, and f telling the Navy to, to go build icebreakers and then maintain man training equipment, operate icebreakers, and not give them the resources and the manpower in order to do that, well, then the Navy's going to have to not do something. And I don't think there's things that you want your, there's more important things you want your Navy to do. I, if the Coast Guard sees those as a requirement, yes, they're my closest, uh, you know, they're, they're my second favorite service, believe it or not, and um, uh, uh, no Marines in here. But um, uh, I've commanded Coasties, they're phenomenal. They do phenomenal work for us. Okay. Admiral, thank you very much for your time and your assessments. Okay, Appreciate thanks, Eric. Thank you all very much for your questions and attention.